Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader, or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hey there, and welcome to episode 51 of the Leading Learning Podcast. In this episode, we're going to talk with Jonah Berger, who is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and the author of multiple best-selling books. Before we do that, though, we want to be sure to highlight our annual Leading Learning Symposium, an event designed specifically for senior leaders at organizations in the business of lifelong learning, continuing education, and professional development. The symposium is fast approaching. It will take place this year on October 24th and 25th in Baltimore, and we really do have a great group of people coming together for it. To find out what the symposium is all about and see the great things that last year's attendees had to say about it, please visit the event website at symposium.leadinglearning.com. We'd also like to thank your membership, which as the executive sponsor of the Leading Learning Symposium is also the sponsor for this episode of the Leading Learning Podcast. You can find out more about your membership and its learning solutions at yourmembership.com. Now, Salisa, you got to talk to Jonah Berger, who is just a a very interesting person, at least in in my mind. I've uh, had the pleasure of reading some of his books and actually listening to a course that he did for The Great Courses, and um, he's all about influence, uh, spreading ideas. He's definitely influenced me at this point. Uh, What was that conversation like? Well, it was a good conversation, and I think as you hit on already, you know, he's written these books, Contagious and Invisible Influence, and I think um, it's really interesting there what we can apply, not only in the sense of marketing and selling um, learning products, but also to how we think about designing and developing better learning products. I think there's a lot that we can sort of take from that realm of social influence and um, social psychology where he's grounded and really apply that to what we're doing in lifelong learning. And so that was um, sort of the trajectory that we took on our conversation. And I I think, you know, as you said, he's just a really interesting guy um, bringing up very interesting topics. So it, it was a fun conversation. Well, I'm looking forward to because, I mean, learning is fundamentally, after all, about the, the spread and adoption of ideas and, and how that changes behavior, you know, not just for individuals or organizations, but even for, you know, entire societies, things that actually change the world. And I think that's kind of the level that, that Jonah works at. So very interested to hear what he has to say. So let's get on with the interview.
I'm Salisa Steele, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I'm joined by Dr. Jonah Berger. Jonah is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He's a best-selling author. He has two books, Contagious, Why Things Catch On, and Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. And he's spent the last decade and a half or so focusing on social influence and, and how it works, how it makes products and ideas catch on. So Jonah, thanks very much for taking time to talk with me. Thanks for having me. And so first, since I only offered a brief introduction, I want to give you a, a, a chance to say a bit more about yourself and, and your work. Sure. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm a professor at the Wharton School uh, and do a lot of research around word of mouth uh, and social influence. So I think uh, we all see word of mouth uh, in action. Uh, we realize uh, that it's more effective than traditional advertising and changing people's minds whether we think about sort of the last book we, we re- listened to or uh, the last movie we watched, often these things come from friends and colleagues. Uh, but as organizations uh, trying to get our own products and ideas to catch on, how can we leverage uh, word of mouth? And so that's what my research is really about, what drives people to talk and share, why they share some things rather than others, uh, how companies and organizations can use that to get their stuff to catch on. Well, great. And, and I know that your book, Contagious, in there you really sort of unpack sense six principles that you found really tend to make things be talked about, shared, and and imitated. So I was hoping maybe you could just briefly briefly talk us through those six principles. Sure. So uh, I've looked at thousands of pieces of online content, tens of thousands of brands, millions of purchases. We've done a a number of studies in the space. uh, And what we found across these different uh, areas is that six things, uh, as you mentioned, seem to consistently drive people to talk and share uh, and lead products, ideas, and behaviors to, to catch on. Uh, in Contagious, I put them in a framework called the STEPS framework, uh, which stands for social currency, triggers, emotion, public, practical value, and stories. Each of those is sort of a psychological principle that drives people to talk and share and, and causes all sorts of things to, to catch on. Well, great. And, you know, uh, to talk about your other book for a minute, you know, Invisible Influence, I mean, there you're really sort of looking at not only how social influence is real and how powerful it is, but but you really talk about, too, how we're largely blind to it. And so, you know, when you think about kind of the, the six principles and then the invisible influence, you know, I, I guess what's the value um, for us as we begin to recognize these, these principles and these invisible influences that are working on us? I think the key question is we all would like to change uh, people's behavior, whether we're trying to persuade someone to take an action whether we're trying to encourage a customer to purchase something, uh, or whether within an organization we're hoping a, a new idea or a new initiative will catch on. Um, and the, the best way to do that is to turn uh, listeners, customers, people that already like us uh, into advocates, whether actively uh, through word of mouth or more passively through other types uh, of social influence. Uh, you know, we can use other people to be our own messenger. Uh, and I think that's what's so exciting about these tools. You don't need a big advertising budget. Uh, you don't even necessarily need to, to use social media. Um, you really just need to understand the psychology of what drives people to share and why people influence one another and, and when it can be used to, to help us. Well, that's great. And I, and I know, you, you know you teach marketing, and I think that um, as you're just getting out there that the application of things like, like those six principles, like steps, that social currency and the triggers and the emotion and, and all of that, um, you know, I think that application is pretty clear in terms of how the, the listeners to the Leading Learning podcast could could apply them when they're thinking about marketing and, and selling their education products. Um, like you said, then that helps in terms of not needing a big budget. And, you know, you can just kind of enlist some of that word of mouth. But 
but what I'm wondering about is if you see an application um, for your work on how learning happens, do you think that there's a, a potential application for these ideas to how we might design learning to be uh, more effective? Yeah, let me pick one principle that we've talked a little bit about, the idea of a, a trigger, and, and talk about that for a moment, because I was recently doing a, a big actual internal learning project uh, with GE, uh, and they are obviously famous for Six Sigma uh, and Total Quality Management and a number of these other sort of uh, infamous learning tools, but they, they found a bit of a challenge internally, which is when people went through the training program, they would listen to these ideas, and they would agree with them, uh, and they would say, yeah, sure, we're definitely going to do this, uh, and then when it came to put those actual learnings in action, sometimes they didn't happen. Uh, and people would say, oh, yeah, I, th- that principle, I remember that principle I learned, but they weren't thinking about the principle near where the time of be- behavior takes place. Um, and this is often a challenge, right? Almost pattern matching, we've learned something, but how do we know that this is an occasion uh, to, to, to use it in? And so uh, one thing I think is very important is, is a trigger. So uh, if I said, for example, peanut butter and, uh, what word might come to mind? Jelly. Jelly, right? Or if I said rum and, you might think of? Coke. Coke, right? And so these things are paired together in our mind, but what's so great about it is, is peanut butter is almost like a little advertisement uh, for jelly. Because if peanut butter's around, jelly doesn't have to remind you it exists. Peanut butter does all that work for jelly, right? You see peanut butter, you think, oh, jelly, it reminds you. It's a trigger reminding us to think about something that's not physically there. And so the same thing in thinking about pattern matching and learning, you know, people may enjoy something a lot when they learn it, um, but then they cheerfully go back to doing what they were doing before because they don't have that learning triggered near where the behavior's uh, taking place. We did a study, for example, a few years ago where we were trying to get uh, undergraduates at Stanford University to eat more fruits and vegetables. Uh, and when you ask them, hey, do you know you should eat more fruits and vegetables? They'd say, yeah, of course. Oh, definitely. I, I know I should eat more fruits and vegetables. Yet they weren't changing their behavior. Uh, and so we tried two different slogans. Uh, one was uh, live the healthy way, eat five fruits and veggies a day. So we brought a bunch of people in. We showed them the slogan. Uh, and we actually measured how much it changed their behavior. And another slogan was each and every dining hall tray needs five fruits and vegetables a day. Uh, and ahead of time, we, we tested these two slogans. We said, okay, which of them do people like more? They like the first one more. Which one do they think would change their behavior? That live the healthy way, the first one, they liked it much more. But when we actually looked at what happened to behavior, that live the healthy way slogan that everyone liked, people liked it when they heard it, but it didn't actually change their behavior. The each and every dining hall tray slogan, not liked very much, pretty boring, led to a 25% increase in fruit and vegetable consumption. Mm. And the reason why we designed that slogan was because students ate in dining halls, and when they went to go to dinner, they would pick up a tray to pick up their food. And so every time they picked up that tray was a peanut butter for our jelly, in this case, the slogan to remind them to eat fruits and vegetables. And so it wasn't that they, they needed their attitudes to be changed. They agreed that it was a great thing. They just needed to be triggered at the right time to take action. And so going back to learning, same sort of thing, right? People may enjoy something that they hear, but it has to become actionable and linked to something in the environment near where that behavior is taking place. You got to find a, a trigger or a, a peanut butter. Absolutely, that's that's great advice in terms of right how to really build in something. If you can build in that trigger, then that really will will put that action into learning at the right moment. That's great. Um, you know, I, I think another interesting thing about learning is just how important motivation is, and that we know that the learner really needs to be motivated if if the learning is going to stick, and and so kind of a related question, but as you know, do you see potential application uh, of your work around learner motivation and, and what it might teach us about how we could potentially motivate our, our learners? So, you know, rather than the everyone waiting till the end of the year to fulfill their required continuing education, you know, how can we make them uh, buy in earlier on? 
this is always a great challenge. And as a, a teacher and professor, I think about this often as well. And usually we think about motivation in terms of either a carrot or a stick. We say, oh, you know, take your, take your learning, do it, do it early, we'll pay you, or you're more likely to get promoted, or, you know, make sure to do your learning. If you don't complete these three programs, you're going to be punished in some way, shape, or form. You're not going to get access to something that you want. But, but neither of those are very effective, uh, and they're often very costly for an organization. And it turns out there's another way uh, that, it, that is much more effective, and that's to use peers or use social comparison. Some researchers did a study a number of years ago where they wanted to get people to conserve energy, to turn down their heat uh, in the winter and turn down their air conditioning in the summer. So they went door to door and they tried a number of different appeals. One was based on sort of money, traditional, you'll save money uh, if you save energy. And they told people that appeal. Uh, another appeal was you'll save the environment. You'll be a good citizen. They told people that appeal. And again, they asked people how effective they thought it would be. And people thought those appeals would work, work really well. Similar to the, the fruit and vegetable study, though, they actually followed up with people. They actually looked at their energy meters. Did it change behavior? It didn't. Neither of those behaviors, neither sort of the, the reward of, of money or the you'll be a good citizen, neither of those motivated the people to take action. There was a third pitch, though, that was very effective. And that, that was simply telling people your neighbors are using less energy. The people next door to you, the people in your community are using less energy than you. Powerful motivator uh, to get people to take action. There's a company now called Opower that actually does this. Many of your listeners may have seen it themselves on their energy bills. Rather than getting just your energy usage, who knows if it's a lot or it's a little, it's you know, 1,500 kilowatt hours. I don't know what that is. I have no <laughs> sense of, of how big or small that number is. But it will say, hey, this is what your energy usage and this is what your energy usage is compared to someone else in your neighborhood, someone else with a similar size home, led to a huge decrease uh, in energy use because it gave people a salient reference point to compare themselves to. If people know how they're doing relative to others, they're much more likely to actually engage in that behavior. And importantly, it's very effective when others are just a little bit ahead of us, what I'll call a proximal peer. You tell people they're very far behind. You know, hey, your, your neighbor's using one quarter of the energy you are. You might say, God, I'm so far behind, I'm going to give up, right? There's no way I can, I can meet this goal. Same thing in the learning environment. If you tell people, hey, you know, this other person's completed 10 more courses than you have, you might feel like you, you can't close the gap. But if you feel like you're just a little bit behind, slight bit behind, you're much more likely to be motivated. Uh, and we've looked at uh, thousands of NBA basketball games, for example, and found that teams that are down at halftime by just a little bit, teams that are down by one are actually more likely to win. If they're behind, but just by a little bit, they get fired up, they come out, they work harder, and they're more likely to do well. And so same thing in an organizational context. How can we compare people to their peers, give them a sense of what others are doing, and use that to motivate them to take action? That's great. And it, it seems to me that, that, that um, tying it to peers, too, also could play off maybe a little bit of that whole the, the fear of missing out. You know, here's what your peers know about the subject, you know, and... and and here you don't know. And so that creating, again, that sort of gap and that sense of what, what, you're, what you're playing, uh, and playing off that fear of missing out too, perhaps. Um, so, so one of the other things I did is I listened to um, the, the course you did uh, for the great courses, the How Ideas Spread course. And, and one of the interesting things in there is you talk about, you know, how now we have so much data, both big data and, and little data. Um, and we have all of this data available to us. And, and so we can measure so much more. But you, you caution that we have to be careful because data can really direct our attention to doing unimportant or, or maybe even stupid things. And, and I know you sort of use this joke about a, a drunk looking for keys under a streetlight, not because that's where you lost them, but because that's where there's the light to see. And I know that measuring the impact of learning is a major issue for 
um, folks in the lifelong learning business, you know, measuring not just how many people liked our course or came to a course, but whether they really learn something that changes behavior and, and that they apply. So I was wondering what advice you might have for how to kind of how to choose the appropriate things to measure and, and the right metrics to go along with that when we have so much data to, to choose from. Yeah, it's a great, great question. And I think we, we have lots of data. What we have less of is insight. And so the question is, how can we make sure to pull insights uh, from actually from, from that data? Um, you know, one thing I think a lot about is what is our goal uh, in terms of learning uh, and using that to help guide uh, the metrics that we find valuable. Again, it's not whether people like the course, but hopefully we're assuming, well, they'll use this material. If our goal is to make sure they use the material, well, then how can we give them measurements that test whether they can use that material? What's called situational learning, uh, if you will. So not just sort of a multiple choice test, but actually put people in a situation that's similar uh, to what they would be in uh, and what we're hoping that they'll learn uh, in, in the course that we're teaching them, and then measure, did they do that better after they took the course than before they, they took the course? You know, if we're trying to make sure someone, when they're in a given situation, is more creative, they use a certain tool, for example, that we've taught them on, in a learning experience, well, let's actually put them in a situation like that and let's see if they use uh, a more creative solution. So not just testing, uh, you know, something very far away, but much closer uh, to what, what we're actually looking for. But, but testing and, and measurement is certainly a challenge. And, you know, at the university level, we have, we have the same thing. But, um, you know, when I teach MBAs, for example, we, we don't have uh, often tests that are multiple choice. We use a case exam. Or we say, okay, here's a real situation that a real company was facing. What would you do in this situation and why, based on what you've learned in the course? And the value there, again, is, well, they're hoping to go out in the world and use these ideas in real situations, in real organizations. And so the closer the test is to what we're actually hoping they'll use in the world, uh, the much more likely that test will actually show what we care about, which is can they apply it to that real situation. Mm, great. Yeah. So a real focus on the application or as close as you can get to the real world application. Um, so to switch gears a little bit, you know, you've done a lot of research over the years and, and I know you have these, um, these, uh, couple of books out there, but I'm interested in, in, you know, what topics are you curious about now? What topics are you looking to explore next? Uh, you know, uh, there's there's never uh, never a shortage of interesting things to examine. Uh, we're doing uh, dozens of different research projects on a variety of, of different ideas. Um, one thing I found particularly interesting uh, recently is uh, is mining textual data for information. We have all sorts of information online from uh, consumer reviews and, and word of mouth to social media data and search data. Uh, how can we mine this rich source of textual information for, for insights? Uh, and so doing things, looking, for example, we did a paper a few years ago on uh, whether people share New York Times articles based on the content. Uh, we're doing a, a project now looking what about written content made people read further down in an article, something that uh, learning organizations should be interested in, right? We give people yeah. an article. We don't just want to know if they opened it. How far down did they read? Uh, how can we think about features of the text that might influence that, that reading decision? Absolutely. That's great. And, and so, you know, we've mentioned that you're immersed, obviously, in, in this, all the social science and the marketing and in the MBA world, but, you know, you're, you're teaching this too. You're a teacher. And so when you think about the future of learning, you know, is there uh, something that you think or hope might change in the next, you know, five years or so? Well, I think what's so exciting about learning is, is the way it's changing and the different channels that we can learn through and, and from 
you know, you mentioned sort of some online courses that I've done. I've done things with Coursera and edX and a variety of other different channels. I think there are many ways now or channels that which people can learn through uh, that they never had before. I think the real question, though, is what are the value of, of those channels, right? Uh, do we still need face-to-face learning? When is face-to-face more beneficial than some of these online forms? And what can online give us that face-to-face can't always? Uh, and so really think about how to deploy these different tools effectively uh, across learning environments and across different organizations is going to be key to, to making them actually effective. Well, great. And so then this is as we're heading down the home stretch here, this is the next to last question. And it's one that we ask everybody who comes here on the, the leading learning podcast, because we are so focused on learning, we're always interested in finding out um, how people approach their own lifelong learning. So how do you go about making sure that you stay uh, on top of, of new developments and kind of stay on top of your game? How do you go about learning? I always try to stay curious. Uh, you know, I think there's always more things to learn and more things to find out about. Uh, and the more you stay curious and and realize how much you don't know uh, is a great way to learn more. So some of that is reading journals and going to conferences. Uh, some is having meetings with peers who are knowledgeable in the space, more knowledgeable than I am. There's lots of ways to gain information, and it's just a question of the best way to do it. But, but for me, that curiosity, being curious at your core, uh, is a great way to make sure you're always learning. Well, great. And so if listeners are curious and want to know more about you, um, could you help us know where, where they should go and look to find out more? Sure. So the best place to find me is just jonahberger.com. Uh, that's J-O-N-A-H-B-E-R-G-E-R.com. Uh, you can find information about the books there. Uh, there's a bunch of free resources to help uh, your listeners apply the steps or apply Invisible Influence as well uh, and a bunch of other tools uh, there, there too. Well, great. Thank you again so much for taking time today, Jonah, to talk with me. Great to chat. So that wraps up our interview with Jonah Berger. And as we are parting ways, we'll mention one more time our fall event, the Leading Learning Symposium. To get information about that, go to symposium.leadinglearning.com. And we'd also like to thank your membership again for being the executive sponsor of the symposium and by extension, sponsor of this episode of the podcast. And you can find out more about your membership at yourmembership.com. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 51. And while you're there, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. So if you're getting value out of the podcast, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't already. We'd also be really grateful if you take a minute, really just a few seconds to give us a rating on iTunes. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. We'd really appreciate it. It makes us feel good, obviously, but it also makes it easier for others to find this podcast. And finally, consider telling others about the podcast. Uh, You can do that in whatever way feels good to you. You can share it in person, or if you like to make use of social media, and if you would like a pre-populated tweet, you can get one by going to leadinglearning.com slash share. And we hope we have influenced you to do all of these things. In the meantime, thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.